a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I am happy to join my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how does life find you today? Unmasked, undiapered, uh, and very healthy, <laughs> and attempting to assert what's left of my liberty. Boy, you know, I think this is probably a great place to start is with the mask issue. Um, I I noticed you had written a, a column about uh, President Trump showing up in public in a yeah. mask for the first time. And, and, well, first of all, I'd like to get your take. What does it portend that uh, President Trump, who so far has not knuckled under on a whole lot of things, but this time he shows up wearing the face diaper? Yeah, when I first saw it, I was profoundly depressed by it uh, because I looked at it from the point of view of the principle that's at issue. And from that point of view, it seems to me to be a surrender to the narrative. By putting on that diaper, he's visually confirming the narrative that, yep, it's reasonable to put on this diaper, that that death is in the air, uh, and he's giving lots of fuel to this, this sickness psychosis that's out and about and around us. It makes it very difficult to argue against putting on the face diaper when, after all, look, the president is doing it. Uh, Then, in conversations that I've had with friends of mine, they pointed out that tactically and politically it might be a sound thing to do because, unfortunately, many Americans do not think in terms of principles. They are very utilitarian-minded. In other words, what works? So they see the president going to a hospital, and they see him putting on the diaper, And that appeals to some people who would otherwise be appalled by seeing him uh, walk into a hospital uh, undiapered. And Trump's macro goal here is to not lose the next election. So he's trying to sort of play both sides and maintain his base while at the same time not alienating people on the fence so that he can get reelected and then maybe hopefully do something about the sickness psychosis that's spreading all over the country. That sounds like a pretty reasonable analysis. I know we just had the we had our primary election here in my home state of Utah a couple of weeks ago, and I was not terribly surprised to see how many of the politicians participating in that primary made masks a part of their identity. I mean, they had to have the photo op. Look at me. I'm more, I'm doing my part. I'm a good citizen, and you should be too. And it, it just mm-hmm. it sickens me because it, it seemed to be pandering of the worst sort. I agree, and uh, practical considerations aside, I think that this is a critically important issue. It may be the most important issue of the past 100 years or even farther back. And I think that it's imperative that uh, that no compromise, no accession, no buying into any of this um, be done by any of us who are aware of the facts about what's going on and what they're trying to accomplish by PTSDing the population into believing that death is in the air. Because uh, this transcends sickness. Sickness is not what this is about. This is about using the fear of sickness to terrorize people, to get them to submit, uh, to get them to do what these people have been wanting to do for a long time and have not succeeded in doing until they figured out that this, this, this phantom virus that's in the air that nobody can see and people might be sick is the absolutely perfect surgical scalpel to use to excise what's left of liberty in this country. 
I'd like to get your take, too, on I, I think you're right when you say this may be one of the most critical issues in the last hundred years. I've jokingly said, you know, tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know, we thought that slavery and abortion were, you know, yeah. hot, hot button topics. But masks. I see more division and I see more people like ready yeah. to go to battle over these masks than I ever would have thought possible. What drives that uh, that sense of uh, en- enmity between people? Well, there are a lot of things, but uh, for my own part, I think it's because of the principle that's at issue here. It's this idea that you might be sick, uh, and therefore the assertion that you might be sick uh, empowers the government, empowers other people to impose essentially any restrictions and controls that they wish to impose on you, not for anything that you've actually done, not based on any evidence of anything that you might do, but just because of their feelings. And if they can do that, what can't they do? That's the question that I have. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I was having a discussion actually with a, with a guy behind the counter at a coffee shop the other day, and I said, I've got a pretty powerful right arm. You know, I could probably punch somebody in the mouth with my right arm. Uh, I might do that. So does the fear that I might do that mean that I should have to walk around with a strap around my arm that ties it to my side just to make sure that people aren't scared that I might punch them in the face? That's the kind of thing. I mean, I know that's a little bit of, a, of, of an exaggeration, but I hope it gets the point across. What we're doing is institutionalizing this idea that people's fear of what might happen uh, empowers them to impose limitless restrictions on people who haven't done anything. Well, and and the the challenge of sticking to your principles is not getting easier. And I say this as one who uh, I told you last week, my wife and I, we've had kind of an ongoing and evolving discussion around this. Yeah. And and I'm I'm catching heat at home as well as from other places as to why won't you put on the mask? Why is it such a big deal? Why is this the hill that you want to die on? And I don't know that I have a great answer other than I don't want to raise that flag of surrender and put it on my face. And that's what well, I feel that it would be it matters. doing. It matters, Brian. You know, 20 years ago, I made largely these same arguments about what was then being proposed with regard to air travel and that uh, we should take a stand on, on that hill so that our children, our wives, our girlfriends, our grandparents would not have to stand there with their arms out while a government goon put his hands down their pants. And this is the same thing happening again. This is kind of a bacteriological or actually a propaganda 9-11 without having, you know, without having any, even anything remotely uh, comparable in terms of the actual harm that's been caused that's being used to institutionalize the same sort of thing. I mean, at what point does going along to get along stop? If, if all of a sudden the government says or stores say you have to hop on one foot in order to shop here, are we going to do that too? Well, and, and in my home state of Utah, this has become, it's taken a new level because um, now it's becoming a requirement if you want to go back to church. And this differs from congregation to congregation. I've heard some people say that, uh, you know, uh, the limited uh, church attendance, we're just now seeing uh, people starting to go back to church. But that's a big deal here in Utah. Yeah. And, and one of one of the uh, church leaders came out and said, you know, be a good citizen, wear your mask. And my goodness, people have taken it as well. God has spoken. And this is what you do. And if you don't, I mean, it's it's taken on a, a, a jihad dynamic. Well, it's horrible. You know, we are now – how is it a compassionate and loving thing to, to treat other people as presumptive lepers and to treat yourself as a presumptive leper? My God, we can't even see each other's faces anymore. We can't communicate with, with each other in the way that human beings are designed by nature to communicate in terms of facial expressions. You see 
these these uh, NTC people out there with their diapers on, and you can't tell what they're thinking. You can't tell whether they're happy, whether they're irritated. You don't have the visual cues anymore to function. And again, based on what? I'm not sick, so why in the world would I put a diaper on my face? I'm continent. That's why I don't wear a diaper <laughs> down below. It's It's like this lunatic world is being imposed on people. Of course it makes sense if you're sick to uh, to wear a, a face covering of some kind, but this idea that you should do it because you might be, that's deranged. That's pathological. That is giving into a, a psychological illness that used to be regarded, rightly, as a psychological illness. And now, topsy-turvy, the people who question this are the ones who are being portrayed as having some kind of a mental problem. One of the points that you made in your article as well that just jumped out at me was if we set the stage for, well, this is the new normal, it's going to be a lot harder for us to protest when mandatory vaccines become the norm. And let's talk for a moment about, you know, the vaccine regime, you say, is going to be very difficult to evade, much tougher to evade, say, than even taxes. Of course. Well, in the first place, if you accept, you know, principles matter. That's why I always harp on this. If you accept that it's reasonable and necessary for everybody to go around wearing a diaper because you know, this is the only way that we're going to prevent this, this disease from killing all million, lots and lots of people, you have already accepted the necessity for vaccinations, haven't you? And not only that, they, they will have used these diapers to demoralize people. If people are already nearing the end of their rope. I certainly am. People are tired of this, having to live like this, and that's on purpose. They're going to make people so sick of walking around with this stupid diaper on their, on their face that they'll, they'll line up to get their officially mandated government vaccination. And then what they'll do is say that you can't enter stores, you can't go to the bank, you can't work unless you demonstrate proof of having been vaccinated. And at that point, it's going to be a little too late to wiggle off the hook, isn't it? Sure it is, exactly. That's why this fight is so important. If we don't, if we don't uh, defeat the, the diapering, we will be subjected to vaccination, and it will be imposed economically. They won't have to pass laws saying that the cops will give you a ticket. They'll simply say, you can't shop here, you can't work here until you provide proof of your vaccination. And I think the way that they'll enforce that, too, will be electronically by, for example, eliminating cash. So they'll be able to turn off your ability to transact, to, uh, to buy, to sell, uh, and everything else unless you bend me and submit to being vaccinated. And people need to understand it's not going to be just a vaccination for this. It's going to be open-ended. Again, the principle matters. If the government can make you submit to getting a vaccination for X, then there's no logical reason for saying it can't force you to get a vaccination for Y and W and U too, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Come revel in wrong think. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, uh, I encourage people to go to your website because they're always going to find great food for thought. And if they're into cars, they're going to find a lot of great automotive information as well. You had a recent uh, column about stimulus of the right sort. And yep. with, with the looming talk about uh, lockdowns again, I guess California went into lockdown again yesterday. Um, it's it's going to be pretty tough for people to buy cars. I assume that the car industry or the yep. automotive industry is going to be looking for, for stimulus. But you are talking about a slightly mm-hmm. different kind of stimulus that, that perhaps the taxpayers would find a little more bearable. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, well, I think one of the greatest disincentives to the purchase of a new car is the fact that in roughly half the states in this country, there is an annual tax, a property tax that's very much like the, the property tax on your home that you pay on a vehicle. And, of course, it's based on the assessed value, and it's an exorbitant tax. Uh, for example, in Virginia, it's typically about 4 and a half bucks for every $100 of assessed value. So if you were to buy, a, uh, let's say, a loaded Camry, which will cost you about 30-something thousand bucks, you're probably going to be paying about $1,000 a year for the privilege of being allowed to drive your own the car that you paid for. And by the way, paid taxes on multiple times already at the time of purchase, at time of registration, at time of titling, and when you put gas in the tank because you're paying taxes again there. And let's not forget that was using money that you already paid income tax on as well as state income tax on probably. This is not making me feel better, but please continue. <laughs> Well, and the crazy thing, it's so insidious. If you look at it cumulatively, even you know, even on the lower end, I have an almost 20-year-old truck, and now my tax is down to about $70 a year. But nonetheless, if you, you know, multiply that out uh, over, say, 15 years or so, and it's a large amount of money. And you know, if, if anybody who isn't uh, enumerate looks at it and realizes, you know, gosh, I, I'm not going to pay that. Uh, really, so the best way you can avoid paying most of it is by buying uh, a used older vehicle that doesn't have a very high assessed value, which limits how much uh, they can stick you for. Now, to get back to the idea of the stimulus, I think it would really help and encourage uh, the purchase of new cars if that obnoxious tax were gotten rid of. Uh, it's, I think, beyond outrageous that they apply that additional tax to something that has already been taxed so many times. And, and the tax itself is so extraordinarily regressive. Uh, I certainly would be more inclined to consider something new if I knew I weren't going to have to spend another several thousand dollars uh, in taxes on the thing. It's crazy, too. I was reading on LewRockwell.com the other day that uh, there are a number of states and municipalities that are actually looking to double down and raise taxes. Why? Well, because, you know, uh, the economy's not going well, but we still have to pay for all of these blessings that we're bestowing sure. on you that you don't have a choice in, in taking. Oh, yeah. It just seems like a no-win situation for the taxpayer. You can't work because we've locked things down, but we still need those taxes. Cough them up. Yeah, they, you know, they, I, I, they are going to incite something ugly by doing that. You're exactly right. You know, they have, it's not, it's not the, the coronavirus that's crippled the economy. It's the government that has crippled the economy, crippled our ability to work, to earn a living. And now these same people who considered themselves, defined themselves as essential workers during the height of the lockdown so they could work, they could collect their checks, which are paid for by us, uh, are going to double down, as you say, and try to make us pay even more for the services we didn't ask for, don't want, and in many cases we can't afford to pay anymore. Well, and it's it's sparking some flight, and it's not just the taxes, of course. You know, the crime rate in, in places like uh, Seattle and Chicago and others. Yeah. Uh, the, people are fleeing these cities. Uh, I think I saw an article yesterday again on Lou Rockwell about um, the, the wait time for a U-Haul if you wanted to move out, was at least three weeks, and that was from Illinois. Mm -hmm. I assume that it's probably well, about yeah, the same I'm, elsewhere. Well, I'm, are you surprised? Oh, you know, let's live in a place that's, that's uh, become a Mad Max zone of violence. Uh, and in addition to that, pay outrageous sums in taxes for the privilege and be legally denied, in many cases, the right to even own the means of self-defense. Yeah, that sounds like a place where I'd like to live. 
Well, I, I wish those people who are looking for greener pastures a chance to find them. But, but my perception is it's pretty tough to find. Uh, there, there, is, uh, there are very few places left where, where there is genuine, authentic freedom to be found. Well, there is, provided you don't want to live in a tent in the woods. That's the problem. Uh, even in rural areas, even in my area, uh, the diapering is, is accelerating, and, of course, the taxes are omnipresent. Uh, I don't know what the solution is anymore, other than to get back to where we were at the beginning of this uh, conversation, that the time has come to stand our ground and say enough is enough. Yep, and there and there are so many different fronts on which a person can can make that stand. You had mentioned, you know, going away from cash, um, and and I'm yeah. seeing I'm seeing the signs pop up in different retail establishments. Hey, we don't have enough coins. Uh, please, you know, either round up or you know, pay with exactions mm-hmm. or pay with a card. Uh, are we are we taking those uh, those final steps into a cashless society? Well, yeah, they're trying to. Uh, in fact, at the height of Corona fever, uh, th- this has died down now. Interestingly, but at the height of it. Uh, they were really selling or trying to sell this idea that, that physical money is dirty and is going to transmit the virus. And a number of local shops in my area, the few that were still open, uh, were not accepting cash anymore, which technically is illegal because cash is still legal currency for all debts, public and private. It says that right on the money. But nonetheless, uh, they were taking it upon themselves to do that. And, of course, the government and the powers that be uh, are loving that idea because it means that every single transaction down to the purchase of a can of pop is going to be something that they know about, that they record, and that they can use computers and algorithms to collate and monitor all of your habits, keep track of every last cent, and, of course, make sure that you pay every last cent that you, air quotes, owe them. Yes. <laughs> it's it's the privacy issue that, that gets me the most. I mean, the taxes I don't like them, but but I accept it just as kind of a fact of life. And until mm-hmm. until something comes along that's better, uh, we're going to be stuck with it. It's that loss of privacy that absolutely makes me want to draw the line. And and you know, without cash, what then? I guess are, are we back to barter? Well, yeah. If if they even permit that, of course, they've already illegalized that. Uh, de facto and probably de jure in a number of places. Uh, they'll send out the SWAT teams for that. For example, in my rural area, uh, if you have a, uh, a little homestead farm and, and you have some cows and you want to barter the milk that, you, uh, that your cows produce for the, the neighbor's beef or whatever they have, and it's not all officially documented and done according to the way the government likes it, they'll actually send in the body-armored SWAT team people and, and cart you off to the gulag for that. Well, the the lines are becoming very clear. And Eric, I appreciate so much that you are one of the voices of the resistance and not just, you know, for the sake of, you know, fight the power. But you you are a voice of principled resistance. And, you know, I, I hope that this is I hope we're having the, the influence that, that we're trying to have to at least get people to consider it's OK to be the dissident. It's OK to stand up, even though there's a chance you may be the nail that gets hammered. Uh, we right. need people to set that example so that others recognize it can be done. Yes, it's imperative and it, to not lose hope. And I often bring up the example when this conversation comes up of that. Uh, was it a man or a woman in Tiananmen Square who stood up in the path uh, of the tanks? A sole person just decided that they were willing to risk their life if it came down to it. Uh, to make the point and stood in front of that tank and the tank commander blinked because the tank commander didn't want to run that person over and everything changed overnight. That's all it can take at the right moment with the right person who's got the guts to stand up for a principle that's important. 
Okay, this is why I want to send my listeners to your site, epautos.com. Let's take a moment and give a quick shout-out to some of your sponsors so that people can know uh, know who they, they need to be doing business with. Well, sure. Uh, most of all, uh, Valentine One radar detectors, which, as the American Express commercials used to say, you should never leave home without if you like to drive and like to avoid being punished for driving. Uh, also, um, big, big personal uh, believer and user of Amsoil products, their oil, transmission lubricants, and so on. That's uh, top-shelf stuff. If you care about your car, uh, use that stuff. That's what I use. Okay. Eric, I appreciate so much your time each week that we get to, to sit and visit about these things. Keep fighting the good fight, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for lending your courage to, uh, to the rest of us. You bet, Brian. I will, and you too. Okay, so coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about why it's okay to be an individual. In fact, why it's actually better to be irreplaceable than it is to be interchangeable. And I have some remarkably frank talk on the the topic of racism from a writer by the name of Tom Cranwitter. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, our unofficial motto here is to revel in wrong think. And that's not necessarily, a, you know, an invitation to rebel against everything that everyone is saying. But when you have people actively trying to control what you think, what you say, you know, how you behave, how you must see reality, uh, there has to come a point, at least if you're serious about being a free person, there has to come a point where you're willing to push back. And that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm encouraging people to do is in your own way, just by being an individual. You don't have to do something over it. You don't have to tear down statues or spray paint filthy words all over courthouses. Just be yourself. That act of independence is becoming one of the singular greatest acts of rebellion in the time in which we live. And the world needs Authentic characters. In fact, coming up in the next segment here, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how, you know, a lot of people, uh, they find safety blending into the crowd. And, and we've all been here, right? Do you remember what it was like in junior high and high school? In my day, look, if you wanted to fit in, everybody who wanted to fit in wore hash jeans. Sorry, those were the trend, you know, hash jeans or 501s, I guess, in high school. Your hair was uh, parted down the middle, feathered on the sides. It was incredibly predictable. We all looked great, but we all looked exactly the same. And I'm going to share an an essay with you from James Walpole coming up here in a few moments about how the world really doesn't need more clones. What it needs is authentic, original characters. In other words, you need to be you. But there's also there's there's an advantage to doing this. And he has a really nice take on how the irreplaceable survives the interchangeable. We'll get to that in just a few moments. I want to drop a truth bomb on you that came to me courtesy of one of my Facebook friends, Tom Cranawitter. Brilliant writer. And in this case, he tackles a subject that I know most people would just kind of back away from. Okay, this is a, this is a little too scary. And that is racism. Right? We see it everywhere. Everything that's going on, it's all about racism. Everything that came before us was racism. And if you if you don't see it everywhere, well, that's only because you're so privileged and racist that you've forced yourself not to see it. I think that's how the narrative goes. So here is some frank talk from Tom Cranawitter. Tell me that this doesn't make sense. He says, free people are free to hold racist opinions. 
You, right now, are free to sit on your porch and think racist thoughts about everyone who walks by. Now, he says, I personally don't recommend it. Racist opinions are unsupported generalizations that rest upon the long-ago debunked 19th century biological science of race. Happily, he says, that science was not settled. Racist opinions, in other words, are not worthy of serious, thinking, intelligent minds, not worthy of big souls that love and seek truth. Also, he says, holding racist opinions usually prevents one from becoming friends with some wonderful human beings. Racists miss out on many good and beautiful experiences. The world of a racist is a tiny, cramped world. Racist opinions tend to harden the heart, sour one's mood, and generally transform a person into someone no one finds pleasant, not even oneself. So Tom Cranowitter says, I strongly encourage you not to waste your time thinking racist thoughts. I certainly don't waste time thinking racist thoughts. Never have, never will. Still, free people are free to think racist thoughts if they so choose. It's not a crime. It's not even clear that it's unjust or immoral to think racist thoughts. It's unintelligent, unlearned, and rather pathetic, sure. Watching a racist wallow in racist opinions is a sad spectacle to behold. And of all the wrongs in the world, a, thinking, a person thinking racist thoughts to himself is nowhere close to the worst wrong. Now, when a racist engages in injustice, however, when a racist vandalizes, steals, assaults, rapes, or murders in some... When a racist violates the natural rights of another human being, then it is a great wrong, a terrible injustice. But he's very clear. The unjust act is wrong. It is shameful and immoral, not because it's racist, but because it violates the equal individual rights of another human being. Injustices are wrong precisely because of the timeless, universal, self-evident truth that all human beings are endowed by their creator with the same equal, inalienable rights to their own life, liberty, and property, and their pursuit of happiness, their own person, property, and individual freedom. Injustices are wrong precisely because those rights are real, true, and good, which is why the laws should offer equal protection for the equal individual rights of each and every citizen. Period. No ifs, ands, or buts. No special privileges for special groups, no protected classes, just equal protection of the laws for the natural freedom of all citizens. Tom Cranowitter says, turns out the founders were right, after all. Turns out the principled solution of the problem or to the problems of injustice, racial injustices as well as all other forms of injustice, are right in front of us, enshrined in our founding documents. If only we would remember what those principles mean. That's probably the most frank and blunt description I have seen in a long time, but I think it is absolutely 100% true, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. What a person is thinking in his or her heart is their own business. It is their actions that count. And if their actions are peaceable, guess what? It is not your duty or my duty to change what is in their heart. Certainly not by force, although I will say people have changed my heart from time to time. If there was something that I needed to shift my worldview on, people have managed to, to shift that worldview. And you know how they did it? Through love and through persuasion, not through force. Just a little something to keep in mind. 
Let's switch over here for a moment and talk about how the irreplaceable survives the interchangeable. This is from James Walpole. He says, conformity may be craven, but it's a powerful and common survival strategy throughout nature. Blending into the herd works often enough, but for many reasons, conformity fails in the long run. Why? Because in imitating the crowd, the conformist becomes interchangeable with every other member of that crowd. So if he's lost, that's no great loss. He's standing right next to his replacement. So his conformity may buy him safety in the moment, but it will hide any advantage he might offer to the group or person presenting a danger to him. The nonconformist, on the other hand, takes a big risk in being killed or otherwise eliminated. But in standing out, he clearly establishes a unique sense of value. Think of the crazy artistic genius, the brilliant political dissident, the rogue inventor and entrepreneur. He may have ups and downs in the short term due to his intransigence, but he will also be seen as someone harder to replace, and in that sense, his safety may improve over that of the nonconformist. Whether or not you choose to be a conformist might depend upon your idea of safety. It's true that the conformist may never be killed, but hiding in the group, he may also miss his opportunities to reproduce or to leave some other kind of mark in the world. This is an extinction event all its own. The nonconformist may risk short-term discomfort or even destruction, but in the long run, his works are more irreplaceable and therefore held with more care by the rest of the world. And this has practical implications. James Walpole points out communities that try to become like every other community, say by adding a bunch of fast food restaurants, will be interchangeable, ultimately replaceable, and ultimately not maintained by their citizens. A community with hundreds of years old churches and buildings and memory will last. Anything else you wish to preserve should follow this principle and be unafraid to stand out. I tell you, that one just makes me want to sit back and just kind of bask in it for a few moments and let it sink in. Because I know very well, I remember in my own life how, how powerful it is to, to feel, to be part of the crowd and to know, well, at least I fit in. I'm not standing out. But the older I get, the more I start to recognize that uh, if you really want to do what you were born to do, and yes, I believe that every single one of us comes into this life with a purpose from the highest most talented person that you know to the lowliest little child every one of us comes with a purpose and the ability to shape the world for the better if we find and embrace that purpose but i've also learned along the way it's almost impossible to do if you are simply going off a script that someone else gave you you know the script i'm talking about right the script that says, okay, I want you to study hard, get good grades, go to a good college, get a degree, get a job, make lots of money, earn awards, buy things, retire, and then die. That's the formula most of us follow. And we, we measure success by, well, you know, did you, uh, did you keep a job all your life? Did you, uh, you know, did you get a good pension set aside or, you know, a good retirement built up? Did you buy the right things? Did you drive the right car? Wear the right clothes, etc.? And in applying what James Walpole is saying here, if, if you do it just the same as everybody else, then, then what really distinct, um, distinguishes your life from the rest of the crowd? I know the answer is not something we really want to consider, but it's, it's nothing. It really doesn't. So be a rascal. 
Be the person who stands up. Be the individual you were born to be. Find what that purpose is in your life and live it. And make your mark on the world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back. I am so happy you have found your place among the people who have accepted the truth that they are not sheep. Which brings us to a remarkable commentary I came across uh, yesterday. This one landed in my email inbox from the American Institute for Economic Research. And by the way, I really recommend, um, there are a lot of different articles that I share throughout the week, you know, and th- every you know day in and day out here on this program. You can have these delivered to your inbox by going, for instance, to AIER.org and subscribing to their daily email. They'll send you four or five, maybe six articles, just remarkably well thought out stuff. And maybe you don't read all of them, but I'm telling you, the ones that that come to me, I always find something new, refreshing, empowering. And I'm going to share one of them with you today. This is about uh, who is making decisions about our lives. Kind of a relevant question when you consider that right now, California has just locked down hard once again. It looks like other states are probably going to follow suit. Why? COVID-19, the crisis continues. Who gets to make these decisions? Donald J. Bordreau has a great essay here that spells out why you and I should be willing to uh, ask some questions here and not just passively, okay, well, you told me to do something. I guess I'll go along with it. He says opinions vary enormously about the merits of government-imposed lockdowns in response to the coronavirus. Some data get flung here, other data are paraded there, all amidst fiery discussions of the reality and relative importance of concepts that most of us had never heard of until just a few months ago. Concepts such as herd immunity, comorbidity, T-cells, and the flattening of curves. Conclusions differing as starkly from each other as night differs from day are drawn with ardent champions of each conclusion insisting that his or her stance is the one, the only one justified by science. And by the way, if you missed yesterday's program about uh, how science lost its respectability, the great essay from Paul uh, Rosenberg, you can find it in the archives at LovingLiberty.net. I believe it was uh, hour two of the uh, July 13th program of The Brian Hyde Show. Please check it out. So let's talk about this for a moment. Donald J. Bordrope zeroes in on how science cannot tell us how to make trade-offs. He says, by now it's become trite, but still true, in the pages of sensible publications, to note that the question of whether or not government should lock down the economy, and if so, to what extent, is not one that can be answered by science. Science, of course, supplies information that is highly useful for choosing a course of action. How contagious is the coronavirus? How lethal is COVID-19? Do the health effects of this disease strike different age groups differently? What's the likelihood of a vaccine becoming available within the next year, within the next two years? Science questions all. And of course, the ones listed here are only a small sample of the complete set of relevant questions. But he says, ask as many such questions as are appropriate and answer each as thoroughly and accurately as would Einstein. And you'll still find no answer to the big question. What should government do in response to the coronavirus? He says to competently answer this big question requires knowledge that science cannot deliver. 
one of the most important, although not the only, species of knowledge that is scientifically undeliverable is the knowledge of the preferences and risk tolerances of hundreds of millions of individuals. Preferences including that for risk are including that for risk are subjective and hence cannot even in principle be measured objectively. And these preferences change over time as people learn and gain new experiences. In addition, Donald J. Bordreau says, preferences differ from person to person. The value that Betsy attaches to the freedom to reopen her retail store differs from the value that Barry puts on being able to return to his job on the factory floor. But if Betsy and Barry are under the jurisdiction of the same government, each must suffer or enjoy, as the case might be, whatever policy that government follows. To recognize that reducing the risk of exposure to coronavirus involves trade-offs, and to recognize also that the appropriate trade-off for Betsy almost, certain, almost certainly differs from that for Barry, is to recognize the absurdity of believing that the best government policy is a matter of science. Now, the track record isn't encouraging. Donald Bordreau says, nevertheless, government must do something regarding COVID and the economy, even if something do- the something done is nothing. And he says, I confess to strongly leaning in the direction of having government do nothing. And my reason for this strong leaning is summarized by two words, these people, as in what good reason have we to believe that these people in high government positions will make sensible decisions? Remember, these people are politically driven, even if, contrary to fact, there were a scientifically determinable single best course of government action in this crisis. What reason have these people given us to believe that they are capable of finding that course and understanding it. And even if these people could find and understand the scientifically best course of action, what reason have we to believe that they possess the political fortitude to implement and stick to it? More fundamentally, he says these people have an atrocious track record when it comes to the economy. These people routinely display appalling ignorance of the most basic facts of economic reality. These people regularly act as if the world is filled with free lunches and if reality is as if re- reality is optional. When they raise minimum wages, these people deny that low-skilled workers will suffer any negative consequences. When they raise tariffs, these people proclaim that the resulting greater scarcities at home will bring about greater abundance. When they defend rent control, these people applauding themselves for helping poor families remain oblivious to the resulting reduced availability and worsening quality of rental housing. These people concoct in their political petri dishes the economic cancer of occupational licensing and then unleash it on society. In doing so, these people see only the increased incomes of the monopolists whose competitors are killed off. These people are blind to the harm suffered by both the consumers and those producers denied the opportunity to offer their services to the public. These people defend the government school monster monopoly. They pump ever more taxpayer money into this monster's maw and insist that the monster's continuing failures justify not ridding it of its monopoly status, but instead stuffing it with ever more taxpayer money. These people seem not to understand the first thing about incentives. These people either actively support or do nothing to oppose the calamitous war on drugs. This fact shouldn't surprise, I guess, after all, these people profit from the Banana Republic practice of civil asset forfeiture, a practice that these people declare to be an important tool in fighting the war on drugs. 
Donald Bordreau says very many of these people believe that children, that adults rather, are children who, absent the kindly intervention of these people, will guzzle too many sugary drinks, ingest too many trans fats, and vape excessively. These people insist that the typical American is too irresponsible to save for his or her own retirement. Yet many of these people cannot arrange for the government in which they serve to live within its own means. These people spend borrowed money like mad today and without shame, or maybe worse, without realizing it, pass the bill on to future generations. These people clearly haven't the backbone to deny the most frivolous and costly goodies to their constituents. These people, after all, won't be in office when the bills come due. So what do these people care about what happens in the future? He says these people incessantly display utter ignorance of or contempt for basic economic realities. These people have done so for generations. Much of what these people say about economic matters is the economic equivalent of voodoo. And even more of what they do on the economic front is destructive. And these people are none too careful with facts. They frequently stoke fears on the flimsiest of evidence of looming calamities whenever doing so seems to justify their seizing more power. Whatever reason there is to trust that these people whose incentives are never to look past the next election and to ignore consequences that are difficult to see if these consequences are, ex- are spread over large numbers of individuals, are making a prudently considered trade-off between the lockdown's costs and benefits. What reason is there? Why in the world, he asks, should we trust with the power to lock down an economy these people? This is one of the best essays I have come across in a while, and I see great stuff every single day of my life because I'm actively looking for it. This will be in the show notes. I would encourage you. This is one that's worth sharing. And, and I love the fact that he's using the term these people. I mean, it's, it's right up there, you know, in terms of politically incorrect things. You people, those people, these people. But this is the most appropriate use of that term that I think I have ever seen. I must tip my hat to Donald J. Bordreau, senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. This is uh, this in a nutshell explains why we should not give our allegiance to the people who think that they know enough to make these kind of decisions for us. Now, I don't know whether you agree or whether you disagree. We can talk about it coming up in the next hour. Speaking of which, in the next hour, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, homeschooling. The surge of interest right now in homeschooling is almost off the charts. And Tuttle Twins author Connor Boyack is going to join me in the first segment of the show. We're going to talk about why this is happening. And if you are one of those people who says, I have an interest, well, we'll have some resources for you as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.